So we're going to read from 1 Samuel 17, but I would like to uh, introduce the text before we read it uh, together just to kind of give some context. We're not going to read the whole chapter. It would take us a little over 10 minutes to do that. Uh, so to, um, you can have a little bit of homework to do. Read the whole chapter yourself after the service and talk about these things with your family uh, and with your friends. Uh, but we're going to read a, a, a cross-section of this passage to get to the, uh, the heart of the matter. So let me introduce this to you all first, and then we'll read the Word of God uh, together. During the summers, uh, when I was a little boy, my family and I would drive out to Warsaw, Indiana, along US 30 to visit my grandfather. He lived uh, on the lake out there. And just as we were getting antsy in the van after this long drive, we would know we were getting close when we saw it. A small church with a massive picture window facing the highway. Maybe some of you have seen this yourselves, driving out that way, out east. And in the window was a life-sized model of David fighting Goliath with all of his armor and David with his sling. And we would watch the roadside every time that we would go out there looking for this landmark. And it was exciting to be the first one to see this scene and call out to the rest of the family, there's David and Goliath! This scene was, is uh, no doubt a reminder for all of us today that the account of David and Goliath is probably one of the most well-known narratives in Scripture, right? Uh, even though it's widely known among those who've maybe never even opened a Bible, it's also probably one of the most misinterpreted narratives in the Bible, I think, especially from the Old Testament. Uh, more often than not, readers will place themselves in the shoes of David, and Goliath is whatever personal sin or problem they're facing. So we may be tempted to read this account and take away some worldly application like it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog, right? Uh, so th then the interpretation would be if you just have enough courage like David, you can overcome the giants in your life. Sling that stone of faith at your screaming toddler. Uh, don't do that. Uh, or sling, sling it at your financial crisis and you will always win every single time because David always beats Goliath, Right? And if you are David, you will always win. That's the misinterpretation. That's the misinterpretation. The problem with that kind of thinking is that we like to make ourselves the heroes of the Bible when we're actually really the failures in need of a Savior like David. And I'll say with Matt Chandler, and we've said it in our Bible study yesterday with the men's group, you're not David. That's Matt Chandler saying, the Bible's not about you. It's not. Uh, Jesus is David's greater son. And we need to see in the Old Testament Christ concealed, even in this contest between David and Goliath. That's the real application. That's the real interpretation we need to take away. Not placing ourselves in the shoes of David with his little sling, but in the shoes of the Israelites, cowering in fear on the sidelines with Saul. That's where we need to be placing ourselves, first and foremost. So, like I said, being mindful of the time, we're only going to read a portion of this text and so to build the background context of the rest of this chapter, let me just quickly set the stage for this great fight, one of the greatest fights in history. David was anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16, just very recently. Uh, and this was only known to David and his immediate family. And in the meantime, war had broken out with the Philistines again. And both armies were arrayed in this valley of Alak, uh, which was kind of a, a military buffer zone between Judah and Israel, and Philistia, uh, out on the, uh, the east, or sorry, the western side of, uh, of Israel. And battles like this in history 
uh, usually brought enormous casualties, like the American Civil War would have, uh, where we have army against army in these single battles and clashes. And in the midst of this battle, or this battle array, rather, uh, the towering Goliath came out of the ranks of the Philistines to challenge Israel to send a champion to fight him. Right? Whoever lost the contest, the army he represented would be forced to be servants of the victor. Okay, so it would save thousands of lives, and it was this uh, single hand-to-hand combat battle uh, to, one, spare the lives of many, but it was also uh, a lot more than that. Uh, but as the obvious candidate for Philistia, the giant Goliath was over nine feet tall, okay, by uh, modern measurements, and he wore armor that probably weighed more than David himself sopping wet with the wind pushing down on him. Okay, David was shrimpy, small boy. David was this towering uh, giant. We, we use that term, Goliath, right, when we talk about giant people, big, strong people. And this Goliath, this Philistine, challenged Israel and said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And this challenger sent quivers of fear in the hearts of Saul and all Israel. And worse yet, Goliath challenged them 80 times morning and evening, over the course of 40 days. It wasn't just one time that he came out and he's like, come on, fight me. And they were like, oh, no, no. He did this every single day for over a month. And each time he challenged them, the men of the army of Israel had to question their own courage and really, ultimately, their own faith in the Lord who saves. In the meantime, David was sent by his father, Jesse, to check on the older brothers who were serving in the army. David only had to hear Goliath's challenge once. And he was filled with righteous indignation. And instead of sizing Goliath up for his intimidating stature and appearance, David asked very hotly of all those around him, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? For David, this challenge was not one of outward strength, but a spiritual battle. Goliath defied the living God. Saul and the Israelites were faithlessly focused on human strength and effort. And as David rattled rattled the sabers in Israel, Saul wanted to hear from him. And so where we pick up the passage today in verse 31, we can see two things being developed here in light of this spiritual battle. One, David represents Israel better than Saul. Two, the living God saves by his own power. Let's read the word of God. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight him with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions, plural, and bears, plural. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, 
and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them on in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose, he came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tents. This is the word of God. Let us briefly pray over this message. Father in heaven, the unfolding of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. Help me, your servant, to uh, say and to preach and exhort your word faithfully and clearly and concisely, that I may stand on your authority and not my own, that you bring the victory. And that all this is for your glory and not my own. Amen. Now, let's back up to verse 31 and 32. In the king's presence, and we're starting with this first point, that David is a better representative for Israel than Saul. In the king's presence, after he said all these things about Goliath and challenging him, David puts his finger on the pulse of the problem. The men lined up for battle every day and are faithlessly afraid of Goliath. And he said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Why are these men afraid? Because Goliath's size and strength, that's what's causing them to fear. 
Their focus was on human strength and ability. Their focus was on the outward appearance and on weapons of war. Every time Goliath challenged Israel for over a month, they cowered and ran away because he was gigantic and fierce. Now, sure, they were soldiers in the, living, in the army of the living God, but they didn't act like it. When David first heard Goliath's challenge and the men of Israel fled from him and were much afraid, they all said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. Their eyes were immediately drawn to Goliath's stature, and they quailed in their boots because of him. They were unconcerned about the fact that he defied the living God. Goliath's challenge called the very power and existence of God of Israel into question. His defiance was to say, If there's a God in Israel, send out a man to fight me. And if your champion wins, we'll give up. But I know there isn't a God in Israel. You know how I know there isn't? Because not a one of you men is willing to challenge me. For 40 days, the Israelite army had to hear this blasphemy day and night and just shake in their boots. Worse than the army's lack of concern for Goliath's blasphemy is their king was just as afraid of them as them. And when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is not the action of a king who trusts in the Lord to deliver his people. Samuel said earlier in, in Saul's failings that we heard in previous messages, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel. Saul was the head and representative of Israel before the Lord, and his actions were a representation and example for the people. His leading example of looking at the outward appearance and running away with his tail between his legs was a poor reflection on the people of Israel. They didn't see a king who feared God. They saw a king who feared man. This is yet another reason why David was anointed in Saul's place. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul served as a poor example of this theocratic monarchy under the authority of God as the ultimate king. So the future king David put on full display before Saul and all Israel what the kingship was meant to be. He came, up came David by God's providence who had just been anointed to be the next king in place of Saul. And he hears this blasphemy just once and is immediately up in arms with indignation on behalf of the Lord's honor. He sized Goliath up for his uncircumcision, not his stature. This guy, he would say, is nothing more than an uncircumcised Philistine, and he's going around running his mouth about what he knows not. Who's going to do something about it? He asked the camp, is there a reason why you're not fighting this guy? No one was found willing to step up and put a stop to Goliath's loudmouth defiance of their God. So, David said to Saul, Your servant will go and fight this Philistine, which is a little ironic because David was Saul's shield-bearer. So he sends out this young boy who was supposed to be the guy that carried his armor so that he would fight, and he sends him out in his place. This hand-to-hand -hand combat that, that Goliath had challenged Israel to uh, was a combat, uh, contest between the gods and the supernatural realm. It wasn't just a mere human battle. It was seen in that day as a contest between the gods. The victor's gods were more powerful than the loser's gods. 
So David stepped up knowing that the God of Israel is the one true God. Here, Israel is represented by a king who only, who, uh, who now, David, is truly fearing God. Right? And in contrast to David, the man after God's own heart, Saul looked at the outward appearance of things. Immediately, he discredited David and saying, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And so for all intent and purposes, Saul's assessment is not unreasonable. Goliath is huge. David is just a kid. And, he had, and Goliath had seen a lot of war in his time. And so did Saul as king. And since David was just a little shepherd boy, he isn't untested by war. This is comparing apples to oranges. However, Saul's conclusion about this matchup is flat wrong. Because he was looking at it all wrong. He saw the towering Goliath contrasted with a pipsqueak David. But he missed seeing the living God behind David. In contrast to Saul, David had a profound confidence in the Lord's ability to deliver. And to persuade Saul of this, he told Saul about the times when some of the sheep he had been looking after had been taken by a lion or a bear. He said, I went after him and I struck him and delivered him from, its mouth, from his mouth. I caught him by the beard and I struck him and killed him. David had experience rescuing captive sheep from powerful beasts. It is one thing to kill lions and bears from, for taking lambs. It's an entirely another thing for an uncircumcised Philistine to make a mockery of the living God. So he told Saul, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. To David, this Philistine was nothing more than a wild beast that needed to be slain for his insolence and blasphemy. This open defiance of the living God must not go unpunished. Ultimately, it wasn't by the strength of David that he was able to rescue the lambs, and it wouldn't be by his own strength that he would topple the gigantic blasphemer either. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David put no confidence in himself. He didn't read any Joel Osteen books to encourage himself when everyone was all down on him for being a young boy. No, he rested all of his confidence in the Lord who gave the lions and bears into his hand, who would give Goliath into his hands too. David wrote later Psalm 18, and he said this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, the strength of my salvation, my stronghold. That's the confidence David has. It's not in himself. It is in the living God. And almost begrudgingly, Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Better you than me, kid. Perhaps he was convinced by David's words, but probably not. Instead of being encouraged by David's words of God's deliverance and going out to fight Goliath himself as the representative king of Israel, he patted David on the head and said, Good luck, kid. And rather than relying on God himself, he sent this little shepherd boy in his place. And because he relied on sword and spear to deliver, Saul didn't want to send David to combat without some protection. And so he clothed him in his own armor. In the books of Samuel, uh, one of the key features of this historical uh, narrative is uh, the symbolic representation of robes, armor, and clothing. 
And if you read through these books, you'll notice this uh, quite frequently. When the robes and clothing uh, are given special attention in the text, it typically symbolizes a royal secession of handing off authority to someone else. And this especially is the case for Saul and his son Jonathan, who are in special possession of armor and weapons compared to the rest of Israel, right? They're pretty poor, they didn't have a lot, and so them possessing this armor was pretty significant of their authority over the camp of Israel. And now there's a great example after David defeats Goliath, when he meets Jonathan in the presence of Saul, they became instant best friends. And in that moment, Jonathan gave his robe and armor and even his sword and bow and belts to David because he recognized immediately that David was the anointed one to replace Saul, his father. And he willingly, Jonathan willingly, abdicated his place in line to be king and handed it over symbolically to David. So there's a great irony when Saul gives David his armor, his robe, and sword. This was not only uh, in his defection of leadership, or this is uh, his defection of leadership over Israel at a very critical moment. And he was unwittingly, uh, had unwittingly symbolized his own recognition of David as his successor by giving him his armor. But David doesn't take it. It's not his time to take the throne yet, and he doesn't take Saul's armor because it's not befitting of him. David put on all this armor at first, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And so Saul was considered actually one of the tallest men in Israel at the time. He was a towering six feet, which is much taller than most of them were. And so David wearing his armor would actually be a pretty funny scene to, to, to witness. His helmet probably drooped over David's eyes, and the coat of mail probably came down to his feet. And sometimes my daughter likes to wear my wife's shoes, her mama's shoes, and anytime she does, it's pretty funny uh, and a little cute uh, because she just plods around in footwear that's way too big for her. And that's basically how David would have looked uh, wearing this armor that was too big for him. It was not suitable for David to wear armor because he was going in the name of the Lord, not in his own strength. So instead, David put them off, and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine, confidently walking out to the battle line. David put all his trust in the Lord and as his shield and his deliverer. He didn't need a sword or armor. All he needed was the Lord to give him the victory. And going out in his shepherd's gear, David led Israel as their shepherd king. Israel was a sheep that needed rescuing from the mouth of a ravenous lion. So David went against this blaspheming Philistine to strike him down in the name of the Lord. David went down to the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil because the Lord was with him. Now we come to our next point. Goliath comes with sword and spear. And as David approached the arena in the valley, Goliath came forward ready to rock. But when he saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Goliath was ready to chew up and spit out whatever champion the army of Israel sent out. And he was absolutely incensed that this enemy was just a kid. It was insulting to his prowess as a warrior, and there must not have been a God in Israel if this scrawny kid was the only champion they could send out. All the Philistines saw was the external, merely the appearance of things. David was but a youth, and he had no weapons of war with him. And he says, Goliath says, Am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks? Here Goliath, with his armor weighing more than David, and all David had was a shepherd's staff and some rocks. 
It's like Goliath, the mighty warrior, was no more than a mangy mutt to David. In truth, he was nothing more and would be taken down like a dog. The contest was more than one of sword and spear. As David approached the battle line, Goliath took up his blasphemy once more. The Philistine cursed, God by, or cursed David by his gods. And at the heart of the contest, Goliath raged, is there a, a god in Israel or not? But, oh, if that Philistine could have remembered what happened to the statue of Dagon so many years before when the Ark of the Covenant was placed before it in Philistia and that statue fell down and its head popped right off. What an interesting foreshadowing of David and Goliath's contest. That God was no God. It was dumb, idle, and nothing. Here, the Philistine evokes curses by his gods on David and returned to his confidence in his own strength. He said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. He may as well have said, those sticks and stones won't break my bones and I'm going to break every one of yours, kid. At the Philistines' bravado, David was unfazed. You come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's not in David's own strength or confidence or weapons that he takes on this challenge. I say it over and over again. It was in the mighty name of the Lord of heaven's armies with whom David came. David relied on God alone, who would destroy the Philistines as a testimony of his sovereignty and salvation. This day, David says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. In the valley where the echoes of the voices of these champions could be easily heard, by both armies, David preached. He preached his only boast in the Lord. And he gave two reasons why God would deliver the Philistines into the hands of Israel that day. The first reason is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Unlike Philistia, there is a God in Israel. He is the living God who made the heavens and the earth. This contest was over before it began because there is no God in Philistia. There is one true God and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So despite his misrepresentation by Saul and the army of Israel, cowering in fear as if there was no God, he is there, he is spoken, and he is mighty to save. This battle was a testimony to the whole world, not of how an underdog can win against a formidable foe, but of God's eternal power and glory. The second reason is that all this assembly, the armies gathered hearing his voice, and you as well, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's not by the strength or prowess of men that God saves, but through the weak and foolish things of this world. It's a stark contrast to what the world expects, human strength, determination, and power. God used David and his sling to topple the mighty so that it would be plainly known that this God alone saves. Israel cannot boast in this victory on their own merit. Saul cannot boast in this victory in his own merit. Not even David can boast in this victory of his own merit. For the battle is the Lord's. David was simply united to the name of his God by trusting faith. Done listening to this kid with sticks. 
the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. And what is remarkable is that David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. There's no hesitation in David. He knows in whom he is believed. And with a sling and a stone in hand, he charged right at that giant, trusting God to deliver him into his hand. Now, it's important to note that these projectiles, these stones with these slings in ancient Israel, uh, can actually travel almost at 150 miles per hour. This is no Bart Simpson slingshot, okay? However, even so, Goliath's armor probably would have protected him all the same. But because the battle belonged to the Lord, that stone sank right into his forehead, and he fell to his face on the ground. I would imagine that him wearing this helmet... It probably went through the metal of his bronze helmet and into his brain. Okay? That is only possible by the Lord guiding that stone into his forehead. It's KO, game over for this loudmouth blasphemer. Before the watching armies, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. There was no sword in the hand of David. On full display, God had shown to the whole assembly gathered that day that he saves by his own omnipotent hand. All that David said the Lord would do for him came to pass. And David heaved Goliath's sword out of his own sheath and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They're the ones afraid now. They recognize there is a God in Israel. Because the Lord had prevailed over the Philistine through his servant David, the rest of the army of Israel was actually revived. And all the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, back to Philistia. The Lord's anointed king was victorious over the champion of the Philistines, and God gave further victory to Israel over the rest of the host of the Philistines. There is a God in Israel, and he does not save with sword and spear, but delivers his people by, uh, and delivers them into their hands. All the victory and all the glory belongs to the living God. No doubt David's possession of the Philistines' head and the armor was a perpetual reminder that the battle is the Lord's. We have a representative king who has gone before us 2,000 years ago. This king is David's greater son and greater than Saul or David ever could be. David was just a type looking forward to that greater son and Lord to come to vanquish more than just a giant blasphemer. Jesus is David's greater son anointed by the Holy Spirit and appointed to be the head of the church. This Jesus is far greater than David because he took on the enemies of sin and death and he destroyed them for his people. In the beginning, our first parents disobeyed God and brought sin and death into this world. Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden. He was the head of all humanity. And because Adam failed by his disobedience, all mankind was cast into brokenness, associated with his disobedience. And Saul followed the pattern after Adam, failing to keep God's commandments and failing to be the representation of Israel as he ought to be. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray, guilty by association with Adam and guilty of our own personal sin. We are far more like Saul and Israel than David in their uncircumcised hearts, faithless sinners. However, Jesus is the greater Adam who is perfectly obedient to the Father, 
He is the representative of all redeemed humanity that puts their trust in him alone. We deserve eternal death and punishment for our sin. But because Jesus stood in our place at the cross under God's wrath, we stand forgiven. Because Jesus was perfectly obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, he secured victory and salvation for all who put their trust in him. David was foreshadowing Christ to come. Standing in our place of the people where they would not and could not keep God's commandments and representing the people of God faithfully. Jesus is our victorious champion, standing now in victory at the throne of the Father. The victory over Goliath and the Philistines was the Lord's victory, and through faith, David receives the victory. In the same way, we are united to Jesus by faith alone. We are unable to secure our own victory over sin and death. It's too formidable of a foe. We are unjust in the sight of God by our own abilities, by our own merit, by our own works. We can't even grow in holiness by our own efforts. We are that small and weak. But thanks be to God for the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. Even the Philistines can be saved now under Christ. And here's the kicker. The great power of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is found here. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. Not in their own works, but by being united to their Savior. By faith. Trusting him. Do you realize what this means? For everyone who believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for their sins... We are forgiven and we are given the righteousness of God. The victory of Christ's perfect life is applied to the believer at the first moment of trusting faith. We are quite actually robed in Christ's righteousness that he earns, that he gives us. And this is not of our own human will, strength, or accomplishments. It is purely the gracious gift of God according to his steadfast love. These robes are an indication of our co-inheritance with Christ the truly righteous one. And all that Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection are ours by faith alone. Yes, we must be the ones that put our trust in him. We must hold fast to him and trust in his real space-time history accomplishment. But this too is a gracious gift of God. We are spiritually united to Christ by faith. And it's not our faith that makes us righteous. It's Jesus who is righteous before God. And we are simply united to him by faith. So the death of Jesus on the cross becomes our death to sin. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus becomes our resurrection to life too. The whole life of the Christian is one lived by faith in the victory of our champion, Jesus. Francis Schaeffer says this over and over again. We live moment by moment in faith. From beginning to end, it's every single moment of every single day living in the light of the death and resurrection of Christ and his accomplished work, not our own. As we fight the old sinful self, which has died to us in Christ, our victories over sin through repentance and faith are not really our victories. They're not. And if you think they are, that needs to be repented of because it's not your victory. Our victories over sin are first the victory of Christ over 
sin and death, by his historical death and resurrection. We cannot overcome or own, uh, our own sinful blasphemies, except that they are first defeated by Christ, to whom we are united, again, by faith. I can wage a winning war against my sin because my champion is Christ and he is already victorious. And in light of that, the whole Christian life is to be a testimony to the watching world that there is a God in Israel, that in the church there is an almighty, omnipotent God who has the power over sin and death and he has secured deliverance for his people through his champion, Jesus. May the watching world know that there is a God in beacon light and that he saves us through that old rugged cross. Before the watching world, David prevailed over Goliath so that all the witnesses of the world would know that God did not save through strength of human weapons. No, God uses the weak and foolish things to shame the strong and the wise. The blaspheming enemy of God was full of his own worldly might and strength, but God publicly struck him down through the young shepherd boy with a simple sling and stone. And in conquering sin and death on behalf of his people, God used the weakness and foolishness of the cross. The disciples in all Israel expected Jesus, David's descendant, to conquer Rome through military might. But instead, he chose to be humiliated and slaughtered like a sheep upon an ugly cross. Satan's power and his weapons of sin and death were disarmed and openly shamed by our Savior's death upon the cruelest device ever made by mankind. By the resurrection of the crucified Lord, sin and death were delivered into the hand of our Lord and Savior. So if we were to boast in anything, let it not be in anything of ourselves. We cannot boast in politicians or in our nation. We cannot boast in our own holiness or our own intellect. We cannot boast in our own good works as if they are somehow good because of our doing them. Far, but far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts, but a new creation. All other boasting, John Piper says, is to be a boasting in the cross. All good things we have come by the precious blood of our Savior upon that cross. He, um, so let us lift up and glorify Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross, this weak and foolish torture device. This is the only way that any of us may be saved from the judgment we deserve. Let us repent if we've been ashamed of the gospel, this foolish thing that God has declared to be the power of salvation. It's easy to shrink from the world that hates the word of God both inside and outside the church, no less. And it's easy to shrink from proclaiming what is weak and foolish in the sight of this world. And it's easy to shrink from the enemies of God and what they may do to us if we choose to stand firm in the Lord, but stand firm we must. Have faith in the God of David. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy them and submit them and take them captive to the knowledge of Christ. So let us faithfully pray for those who walk as enemies of the cross that the Lord would circumcise their hearts. 
Let us boldly and faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a watching world that knows only evil desires. That in hearing the good news, the Holy Spirit would sow the seeds of faith in their hearts. Let us contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That blasphemers of our God and King may have their mouths stopped like that uncircumcised Philistine. Israel of God, take courage. Your champion has gone before you to the cross. He is now reigning in heaven in radiant glory. The victory belongs to our Savior in whom you place your trust. Sin and death are defeated and you stand victorious through your glorious Savior. Ron is standing in glory victorious today because he put his trust in Christ and he died in faith. What can men do to us? In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. God of the armies of Israel, we come into your holy presence. Hearing your word proclaimed this morning, may we be moved by your word to cast our sin at the foot of the cross and be united to Christ, your son, our champion by faith that we may be dead to the world and to our old selves and be alive to you in Christ. Give us the confidence and courage to stand firm and hold fast to the promises you've declared to us and that we would stand in victory through the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.